So we've taken um, a break of two weeks now from our series, and the series we're doing now this fall is going through the different uh, s- sections of a discourse of the Buddha called the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the establishment of mindfulness. And this is the foundational uh, discourse for the Buddha, by the Buddha for the kind of practice we do here at IMC and for all the Vipassana traditions around the world. And um, there's a whole series of different ways that um, Vipassana is presented, or mindfulness practice is presented in this text. And, um, and it basically falls under the rubric, maybe, or the four categories of uh, learning how to pay, pay mindful attention to our body, to our embodied experiences, learning to pay mindful attention Establishing mindfulness by paying attention to what's known as the feeling tone of our experience. Learning to establish mindfulness through attention to our um, the state of our mind, the, the qualities of our mind, quality of mind that we have. So those are the first three. And the first, what's fourth, that's what's called the foundation of mindfulness, the fourth foundation then, is called dhammas, uh, dharmas in English nowadays. And this is... Um, uh, a little bit hard to know how to translate here the word dharma because dhamma or dharma is a multivalent word in Pali or Sanskrit. It has many different meanings. There's a Buddhist dictionary, ancient Buddhist dictionary, that gives something like 54 different definitions for the word dharma. And, um, it ha- you know, uh, one of the most common meanings, it means the teachings of the Buddha. And um, so... Uh, but um, another common teaching is uh, a definition of the word dharma is that it means thing. Like we would say a thing in English. Just a dharma is just a thing. You know, it's kind of a very casual kind of way of saying a thing. Um, so it has a very kind of loose de- meaning there. It also refers to uh, mental qualities. So the kind of qualities that you develop as you practice are sometimes called the dharmas. It also refers to... Um, um, Mental objects, things that the mind can know, are called dharmas. So not just simply good qualities that are developed, but uh, anything, anything the mind could know, which is basically anything at all, uh, is known as a dharma. In Buddhism, they sometimes distinguish the different uh, kinds by capitalizing dharma for teachings. The teaching of the Buddha is dharma with a capital D, and dharma or dhamma in um, uh, as for mental qualities or things, as with lower lowercase d. The difference between dhamma and dharma is two different languages. Dharma is Sanskrit, and dhamma is in Pali. And it's kind of like the, the difference between Latin and Italian, uh, where Latin, or Church Latin and Italian. Um, and so Sanskrit is a little bit more of a constructed language. The word Sanskrit literally it comes from the root um, to construct, to make. Um, and it's more like church Latin in a sense. And then um, Pali is a particular dialect of, of uh, ancient Indian language, Indic languages, and it tends to be softer than Sanskrit. So the R's uh, often get softened. To, uh, so like if it's R, uh, R-M in Sanskrit, it becomes M-M in Pali. So karma becomes kamma, dharma becomes dhamma. So here in the in the fourth and last category of the foundations of mindfulness, we're looking at what's called the dhammas. And 
usually English translators will translate the word dhamma here as mental qualities or mental uh, or mental um, mental qualities or mental objects. I think it may be best not to translate it at all because it, dharma has all these different meanings, but rather to look at the different exercises that are given in this part of the discourse. And there turns out to be five different exercises that are given, five different ways to establish mindfulness, to develop mindfulness. And if you look at these five different ways, they can be summarized as those mental states, those mental qualities, or mental processes, or mental insights, those insights that either keep us enslaved or that liberate us. And that's kind of one of the central purposes of Buddhism, is to move from a state where the mind is in bondage or is addicted or is, is, is um, uh, uh, you know, uh, clinging neurotically to things or somehow captivated by its attachments. And moving from that to a state where the mind is not that way. It's free. It's liberated. And so, um, and so when we're looking at this next category, really getting down to the kind of nitty-gritty, the important areas of Buddhism, which is really understand now how the mind is kept captivated, kept in suffering, and how the mind can move to freedom. So of the five categories, these five exercises, the first three have to do with the being captive, the aspects of being captive. And the last two have to do about the movement towards freedom, how to become free. And uh, so over these, this week and the next four weeks, then, we'll talk about these five exercises. And the ending with the Four Noble Truths, the last of the exercises is the Four Noble Truths, and which are often presented as kind of basic introductory Buddhism. But here in this discourse, is presented as the pinnacle, the climax of Buddhist practice. And um, very... Um, and I'll talk about how that works, uh, you know, I guess in about five, five weeks. Um, for today, what we will talk about is um, uh, the five hindrances. And they're called in Pali Nivarana, and not to be confused with Nirvana, a very different word. And the um, hindrances are belong to a category of lists the Buddha gave that talk about all the different ways that the mind is kept captive or kept inflamed or kept addicted or living in its compulsion. All the different ways that the mind is not free. If the mind is not free, there's something that's preventing it from being free. If the heart is not free, something's preventing it from being free. And so to help us become free, the Buddha points to all kinds of areas that keep us in change or keep us in suffering or keep us in this way. And uh, the five hindrances is one of these lists. It's not meant to be a a comprehensive list necessarily. There are other lists also that talk about these things. But the five hindrances are a very important list because it's said to be the list, um, the, the five qualities that are the greatest hindrance for people going with any kind of depth into their meditation. To be able to develop a real stability and stillness of mind in order to do the deeper work that has to happen to find liberation, you have to really come to grips and grapple with and become and overcome the hindering quality of these things called the five hindrances. And if you go to a Vipassana retreat, especially a 10-day retreat, um, I would venture to say that 
every single retreat you go to, 10-day retreat, someone will give a talk on the five hindrances. Who has been in a 10-day vipassana retreat where someone didn't give a talk on the five hindrances? <laughs> Probably, you know. Um, almost, a lot of other things can change. Dharma topic, where they talk in Dharma talks. But someone will always give a talk on the five hindrances. It's kind of like a liturgy of the vipassana world. And I like to think of it kind of like the old Greek plays where uh, they'd all kind of go here, see this same play over and over again. But they'd be so interested in the nuanced ways in which they were kind of people present the play in a different way. So the same thing with the five hindrances. So, so hopefully now you'll be very interested in the way I present it. Or the way the Buddha, the way Buddha, the Buddha is going to present it. So this is what um, this section of the discourse says. It's not so long, two paragraphs. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating dhammas as dhammas, dharmas as dharmas? Here, a monk abides contemplating dharmas as dharmas in terms of the five hindrances. And how does a monk abide contemplating dharmas as dharmas in terms of the five hindrances? Here, there being sensual desire in him, a monk understands there is the sensual desire in me. Or there being no sensual desire in him, he understands there is no sensual desire in me. And she also understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire and how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire and how there comes to be the how, how there comes to be future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. So we'll talk about that and become clear. <laughs> but the first one is called sensual desire. Then it goes through the same thing, the same description again of each each of the other four, and I'll list the other four. It's ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, restlessness and remorse, and the fifth one is doubt. So the uh, three and four are two paired things together there. So three is uh, sloth and torpor, and four is restlessness and remorse in this translation. Um, so those are the those are the five, and the instructions here are to, un- under- to certainly know when one of these things has arisen, to know that they have arisen, and when it's no longer there, to know that it's long- no longer there. So it's basically kind of uh, clear seeing, seeing what's there, seeing what's not there. Uh, there's no evaluation of it. This is good or bad. There's no identification with it, to using it to define who I am in, in any kind of way. Uh, just very plain, straightforward, recognizing, oh, this is what's here. We call it at, in Vipassana, bare attention. Bare attention, naked attention. Attention that just sees things as they are and doesn't add any interpretation or reaction on top of it. And that's a big part of it, what Vipassana practice is developing, is that capacity to see what's going on in this simplicity of bare attention. Just, oh, this is what's happening, no interpretations. And we often find that a tremendous amount of our life is lived in interpretations, is um, second-guessing what's going on, and here and reacting to it and judging it and assigning meaning to what's going on. And some of that's okay, but often we miss really what's going on, and we often suffer as a result. And there can be a lot of suffering around the five hindrances, 
um, because sometimes they can be unpleasant to have them there, especially if you're meditating and trying to be present and these things arise and make it difficult for you to be present, then meditators can be uh, get very depressed or very angry about their presence or discouraged about their presence, or they can feel, you know, they try to get rid of them and attack them, or they try to hold on to them because they love them sometimes. There's all these ways in which we complicate our relationship to the five hindrances. So at first we're asked just to pay attention to them as they are. Here they are, and just have the simplicity of awareness of their being here. Um, so you could ask, you know, what do the hindrances hinder? Why are they called? They're also called, explained by the Buddha as being that which obstructs. Um, that it's uh, obstructs, and also so talk, it said, the Buddha said that the five hindrances are that which blinds us. So it obstructs our ability to see clearly. It blinds us from seeing what's going on clearly. And that's very easy to see, I think, when you know, we're in the thralls and the grip of really strong sensual desire. You don't really see clearly. Um, and probably many of you have had the experience, perhaps, of falling head over heels in love with some, someone, perhaps, with no clue who the person was. And then finding out later, well, gee, I guess that was a bit of a projection. And so the story I have was one of the one form of, of um, sensual desire in the vipassana world is called vipassana romances. And a vipassana romance is the kind of romance that develops on a vipassana retreat. That's a silent retreat, so no one talks to each other, and so there's no con- no, no verbal contact with anybody else. And people don't normally don't even make much contact, or eye contact, or anything on retreat. And so the other person is really just a blank slate for your projection. And so a Vipassana romance is one where you fall in love with someone, you see someone across the hall, and, and, um, and you have all this idle time on retreat. <laughs> <laughs> and so the mind kind of gets carried away into this world of sensual desire. You know, there's desire for this person, and that desire builds fantasies and ideas. And when I sat my three-month retreat, I had one of these. And I don't think I had it all three months. But it was there periodically with this woman. And But three months is long enough. It was a long enough time to kind of build the story. And, you know, getting to know her and, you know, hanging out and then getting married and having children and getting divorced <laughs> and living happily ever after. And... Um, and uh, then the end of the retreat ha- happened, and at the end of the retreat, we, we do something that's called breaking silence. And so we broke the silence, and I heard her speak for the first time. And she had a really thick foreign ac- accent, French or something. And I realized my whole fantasy was based on her being an American. And, you know, and suddenly I realized I didn't have a clue who this person was, and this was just all this projection of my sense. So sometimes uh, sensual desire, or, or um, you know, can kind of paint the picture, kind of put filters over our eyes, where we don't see things clearly, how things actually are. Um, and same thing with ill will uh, or aversion, the second hindrance. It's probably true for all four, all five of them. So they create blindness. They create, they hinder our capacity to be present. 
You're trying to stay present and the mind is so powerfully pulled into the fantasies of sensual desire. Uh, all kinds. You're sitting here, it's cold perhaps, it's cold outside, and you start thinking about, it wouldn't it be great to be in Hawaii? And for 10 minutes or of the sitting, or the whole 45 minutes of the sitting, you're thinking about, you know, planning and thinking about going to Hawaii. If you're lost in that world, then you're lost in a hindrance. You're being hindered by that movement of desire from being present. The other, um, the second one is aversion or ill will. And that's, in a sense, the opposite. And like also the mind can get pulled into that world and never leave. Or taking a long, takes a long time to kind of snap out of it. And that's where there's some aversion or ill will or hatred or anger. It can be very subtle, it can be very large. On retreat, sometimes this is called a vipassana vendetta. <laughs> Same story. You don't know who the person is at all. But somehow, you know, you, you notice the kind of socks the person wears. <laughs> and maybe that socks reminds you of your, you know, high school, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend who was kind of a difficult person for you. And suddenly, you know, all that anger is directed toward that person. Or, or someone, you know, just the smallest little thing on retreat or a big thing, you know, can, you know, you think that this person is just... And it might be complete fantasy. And you realize at the end you just made it all up. And, and because there's all this time, you know, time on retreat, if a person's not careful, they can get pulled into this world of their fantasy, of hate or vendettas, and off they go. So if you're sitting here on the retreat, right here today, and you happen to be sitting on a very hard chair, or in a hard zafu, and it's getting really hard for your butt, and it hurts, and you're mindful of that, fine, but at some point you slip off the mindfulness into having aversion, ill will for the cushion or for the chair. You start having fantasies about taking it home and getting your axe out and doing something to it. <laughs> or you uh, have maybe uh, start having aversion to the people, like me, because somehow I'm rep- I represent the center in some way and I must be responsible for these zafus that are here or the chairs that are here. And So, you know, who's this Gil and what's he thinking about? And he should know better and... And uh, off, you know, you know, I'm the recipient of. Or someone comes in late and makes a noise coming in, and that's fine. We don't mind that so much, but it can be a source of a personal vendetta. How could that person do that? It's so disrespectful, and da da da. da. And um, and the mind gets lost, is swept up in this world of ill will, the fantasy of ill will. It's said that ill will is a um, lot people tend to be more motivated to overcome the hindrance of ill will than the hindrance of desire or sensual desire because sensual desire is pleasant. It's very seductive, the thoughts. And I've known people who've told me, oh, like on retreat sometimes, you know, I had a really hard day this last day on the retreat and then this fantasy came up. It was a great fantasy. And um, I just, you know, felt like I needed a break. <laughs> some, some entertainment, you know, or... And so I just went for it. And, uh, and it was lost in that world for a while. Um, some people are really into ill will, anger, um, uh, and get lost there easily, maybe because anger sometimes is energizing. And, um, and some people like the vitality that comes from feeling kind of angry and upset or whatever. And so they're attached to that. I think of both desire and aversion here as being the caffeine of the soul. 
And um, it kind of some people kind of get into both of these because it keeps us revved up and going. And it's sometimes sometimes disconcerting for people to have that caffeine taken away, and to not to be driven by desire, driven by anger. Um, it kind of can leave people kind of flat for a while. It's kind of like if you stop taking coffee. There's a withdrawal period, and it's kind of a little bit rocky, a little bit maybe before you get a headache, and it's a little bit difficult for a day or two. The same thing can happen if you withdraw yourself from being addicted to desire or addicted to or consumed by ill will. If you're used to that and depending on that for your energy level or for your sense of orientation, who you are and how you orient, orient yourself to the world, then it can be uh, uh, disorienting to put that to rest for a while. Frightening, for actually, for some people. Um, sloth and torpor. Uh, we don't ever use those words in English, do we? When was the last time you used the word outside of a Buddhist retreat context or meditation context? Um, sloth and torpor. Uh, sometimes it's, it's uh, referred to as um, dullness and, bo- and boredom. I like to think of it. Sloth is physical and torpor is mental. And um, it's not the same thing as tiredness. So it's something that happens in the psyche, in the body, that um, makes it difficult to be present because we feel kind of heavy or or um, uh, drained, or sometimes the mind feels really dense or feels like like a like thick mud, like you're in quicksand. You can't you can't get the mind going or moving to do anything, or just you know there's no energy in the mind, no energy in the body to get going. And sometimes this comes from resistance. Uh, we don't want to be present. We don't want to be here with what's going on. And it's a classic strategy for some people um, to, you know, to not, you know, as a reaction to what they don't want to be present for. They get tired or they get resistant or they get bored or something. The um, fourth one, uh, restlessness and, and remorse. Sometimes in English we translate it as restlessness and anxiety. Because remorse is a kind of... Anxiety is, is more relevant, apparently, for Americans uh, than remorse. Um, somehow, the idea of remorse doesn't... It seems that in ancient India, the idea of remorse was a much bigger issue for people than it is kind of most people here in, in the modern world. I, 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 might, I could be wrong about this, but uh, my sense is that um, the, um, in, the, in, in Asia, in the ancient Buddhist world, perhaps... Um, the only reason why you'd feel kind of anxious or about yourself or kind of feel bad about yourself or depressed or kind of you know, agitated about yourself, you know, restless, uh, anxious, was if you had done something that had caused harm to someone or done something that was caused shame or embarrassment. So you'd actually done something, a transgression. And if you had done no transgression... Then you had what's called freedom from remorse, which was considered one of the one of the forms of happiness. But it seems like plenty of people here in the modern America, they just feel bad about themselves just because who they are. They don't have to do anything about. You don't have to. They don't have to do any transgressions or do anything. You know, say anything bad. Or you just walk into a room and you've never seen these people before, and you feel like you know there's something wrong with us. Me, you know. Oh, I should be, you know. And we're anxious then. Um, and I think this kind of idea of being anxious for no reason, particularly, uh, it was kind of absent in the ancient tradition. 
And maybe it comes from the, uh, the kind of Western idea of original sin, maybe. We're kind of, we're already sinful the way we are. Um, in Buddhism, the idea is we're already kind of, I don't know exactly what the Buddhists say, but uh, the, the, uh, kind of a counterpoint to the idea of original sin in Buddha, in, for Buddhism is that uh, a teaching of the Buddha that says the mind is luminous except for the taints, the defilements that visit it. So things, things like the hindrances cover over the luminous quality of the mind, the beauty of the mind, the freedom of the mind. So in a sense, in a sense originally the mind is free, in a sense. So, um, but restlessness, agitation, remorse, anxiety. And these also sometimes can be strategies of how we respond to situations where we find it difficult to be present for. Um, Sometimes uh, people get anxious as a way of kind of showing... I've heard of some people where they only feel like they show, in certain families, they can show that they, that they love other people in the family by being anxious about other people, worrying about other people, because that's how you show it. Um, and I know some people who, you know, if something bad has happened, uh, they get anxious as a way of somehow thinking they're coping with the situation, maybe showing their cope. I don't know exactly how it works. And then the last of the hindrances is doubt. And classically in the Buddhist tradition, it said that the primary forms of doubt is doubt about the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So, the, uh, so I have doubts about uh, the enlightenment of the Buddha, the possibility of purification that the Buddha represents, the possibility of freedom the Buddha, the Buddha represents. So having doubt that that's possible, doubt that the Buddha had that experience. And without some kind of confidence or inspiration in either the Buddha or other people who've practiced ahead of you, uh, that can be, it can be very hard to go into the depths of what meditation can provide. Um, to be really motivated, to really take it as far as it can really take you, is something which it goes so much against the uh, popular currents of uh, our culture and what our culture thinks is important, that uh, you really need some powerful sense of faith or trust to really uh, take it all the way. So if, you, so if you have doubt, the doubt can be a hindrance. It keeps an obstacle, a blockage, that keeps us blind, keeps us from being present, gets us lost. I've had doubt uh, in my meditation practice, and it kind of pulls me off into this own world of thinking and thoughts and concerns and second-guessing and wondering and confusion. And it kind of gets lost in that world. Doubt in the Dharma, doubt in the practice, doubt in the teachings, or doubt in the community, the Sangha. And it can take all kinds of forms. It can take the form of uh, doubt that this was the right time to meditate. I'm not sure this is the right time. Maybe I should try a different time. Or maybe this is not the right practice. Instead of mindfulness, I think I should be doing concentration practice. No, not, no, not that. I think I should do loving-kindness practice. No, not that. I think I should be doing walking practice there, walking meditation, not sitting meditation. You know, or what's the, really the best practice to do? There's all these, I've heard there's different schools of vipassana practice. And you know, what's the best one? I don't really know. And, and pretty soon, you know, you decide to collect stamps instead. <laughs> because, you know, of all the confusion. And um, it's said that doubt is the most dangerous of the hindrances because doubt is the hindrance, hindrance that can get you to stop practicing, to give up practice entirely. In the ancient tradition, um, uh, the, um, 
There's analogies given or similes given for the hindrances. I think they're kind of interesting. Um, sensual desire is like being in debt. And to be free from sensual desire is like being free from debt. And being free from debt, you put, people feel kind of happy and light. But when you're caught in the grips of sensual desire, that kind of addiction and craving, it's kind of like being in debt. The uh, hindrance of ill will is likened to being um, imprisoned, being in prison. Because you're being afflicted by this torture, by this ill will and anger. And then being free of this hindrance is like being set free from prison. Sloth and torpor is uh, likened to... um, What's... um, Like into what? Yeah, uh, be, uh, doubt is like being lost in the desert, lost in the wilderness. And restlessness and anxiety is like being a slave, because it's some, something is you know, running around telling you what to do, and you're kind of running around like crazy, you know. <laughs> Someone else is in charge, right? And uh, sloth and torpor is what? Quicksand. Quicksand. That big works, works. But, um, but I don't remember. Maybe it's a symptom of a sloth and torpor mind, not to remember. <laughs> the other simile is, um, is uh, the mind is like water. And when um, desire is present, it's like the water has been filled with uh, dye. It's, it's different colors, red or blue or something. And so you don't see things very clearly. Oh, uh, if you look for your reflection in the water, and the water has a dye in it, it's colored, then you see yourself colored. When you look down, you see yourself blue or orange or whatever the dye is. Um, when ill will is present, it's like the water is boiling over, bubbling with boil, and you can't really see yourself at all. When uh, sloth and torpor is present, it's like it's the, the water is covered with moss. And when restlessness and anxiety is present, it is like uh, the wind is uh, blowing across the top of the water and creating ripples so you can't see. And when doubt is present, the wa- it's like the water is... Um, oh, it's muddy. It's all muddy. You can't see anything at all because it's all muddy. And this simile is very nice because it, uh, impl- uh, what we're looking for is having clear water so we can see our reflection clearly, so we can see things as they actually are. So the five hindrances is that which keeps us from seeing things as they actually are, seeing ourselves or seeing, seeing our experience. So a big part of vipassana practice or meditation practice is learning to recognize the five hindrances and learning to somehow overcome them, somehow no longer have them be hindering your experience, your capacity to be present and see clearly. The interesting thing about that is that you don't have to get rid of sensual desire or ill will or the other three. What we have to get rid of is the way in which they function as hindrances. And that's a very important point because you can, it's possible to have sensual desire 
arise. And there's enough clarity and stability of mind that it doesn't hinder our capacity to see and to be present. So it isn't that sensual desire or ill will is the problem in and of itself. But the problem is the way in which we have we relate to their arising, the way we relate to these being present, that we get pulled into their, or, into their world, into their orbit. We get sucked in there and awareness gets lost. It's kind of like, I'd liken it to the black holes of the mind. So you're going along merrily on your own and, um, and suddenly a great desire arises, you know, one of the best ones you've had. And two days later you wake up from that desire, the, or ten minutes later or something, that it's so captivating that like a black hole in space where the gravitational force is so strong that the light that goes by will get sucked in and never comes out. So when the hindrances are hindering, they pull in the light of awareness and awareness doesn't come out. But if we can overcome the hindering quality of the hindrance, then they're no longer a hindrance and they're just sensual desire. Does that make sense? So that's a very important point for me because otherwise, if we don't understand that point, then some meditators will declare war on sensual desire or on ill will or these other things. Oh, they're bad not to get rid of them. It's nice to get, nice not to have them present. But um, what we're trying to do in Vipassana, first and foremost, is learn to become free of their hindering qualities by waking up enough and have enough clarity so we're not caught by them anymore. Um... So in this discourse then, talking about the five hindrances, it says um, one should know when desire is present, one should know when there's the absence of desire, sensual desire. Seeing the absence of a hindrance is very important because it gives us a reference point to highlight the felt sense difference of being captivated by hindrance and being free of it. But by knowing when, we're ap- when, the, when it's absent, we start appreciating the quality of the mind or the quality of the heart that is, is free, that's liberated, that's at ease, that's not caught. And to appreciate that is a very important thing to do. To appreciate that capacity not to be captivated and caught by something, something of the mind is, is one of the ways to, to strengthen that capacity of freedom. It's one of the ways to begin orient, orient, orienting ourselves more towards that kind of way of living. To know that that's possible, know what it feels like, know what it's like. It also, by knowing the absence of a hindrance, it helps us to highlight when a hindrance does arise. Because one of the things that Vipassana students need to do, I believe, is to become so familiar with the five hindrances, you can smell them coming. So you, oh, there it is. And right away, you're, you wake up to it, and right away, you, you learn how to be free of it, rather than waking up five or ten minutes later, or five or ten days later, or whatever it might be. It's best not to take the hindrances personally, as if they're personal failings or personal problems or whatever. Some people specialize more than one, more than one than the other. Um, or maybe we specialize in one sometimes more than the other. 
Sometimes desire is really good, you know, really into it, and sometimes ill will, really into it, and sometimes the other ones. But it's best not to take them personally as being a personal failing. They just come with being a human being. It's part of the territory. All meditators have to grapple with these five hindrances. And rather than, if they do arise for you, rather than being upset or discouraged or feel like there's a problem that, you know, I can't really meditate because they're here, what you should really take them as being the food for deepening your practice. It's the very stuff, the material by which we develop our practice on. So when you have a really good, when you have sensual desire arise, I mean, don't indulge in it. Don't, you know, but your job is to study it and get to know it and explore all aspects of it. What it feels like in your body, what it's like for the mind to be gripped by it. Um, what some of the themes are. Uh, to really get to know it well, study it, be, investigate it, so that you know it so, so well that it no longer is captivating for you. It's kind of like a magician. You know, if, you're, not, if you're watching a magic show, and these magicians can do amazing things sometimes. And you go, wow, look at that. And, you know, I'm sure it's a trick, you know, somehow that card deck or somehow that ring or somehow it's, you know, rigged in some way. It's probably, you know, but it's pretty amazing. And you go back the next day and you're still interested, you know. And you go many times and see the magic trick. But then finally you see how the trick is done. And then you're no longer interested in seeing it anymore. Does it work that way sometimes? So if you get to know that the hindrance is so well that you see how the magic is woven, the spell is woven. Oh, that's how it's done. And then you lose interest. Oh, there's much better things in life than being captivated by sensual desire. There's much better things to do with the human life than being captivated by ill will. There's much better things to do in human life than be caught in sloth, torpor, restlessness, and anxiety and doubt. And to see how that magic is spun on you is really great. Um, I have a lot more to say about the hindrances. I feel like I'm just warming up. <laughs> now, some of you have heard talks on the hindrances a lot before, many times. And it's now one minute to nine. I could speed it up. <laughs> do you feel like I've talked about hindrances enough or should we do it again next week? Next week? Because there was part of it I didn't cover here. The, important, the really interesting part. <laughs> <laughs> what? You doubted? <laughs> Well, those of you who have a lot of desire, please come back next week. <laughs> those of you who have a certain level of aversion to this topic, um, note, n- note that and come back next week. <laughs> those of you who are now very tired at the end of the evening, can't imagine coming back spending another, another evening like this, next week we'll give you the solution <laughs> to sloth and torpor. And those of you who just kind of just so restless, it's 9 o'clock and he hasn't ended yet, and when is he going to end? And I just, you know... You know, I feel like a captive audience, and I got to get out of here. And just this has been long enough. And if you have that going on, come back next week, and we'll we'll do it again. <laughs> so anyway, thank you. <laughs>